welcome to the Icarus Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Icarus Precision Oncology Alliance, a large research collaborative network that is focused on precision oncology and biomarker and molecular-driven research. Every so often, we have the Icarus Molecular Minute podcast, where I host a faculty member from within the Precision Oncology Alliance to talk about the intersection between clinical medicine and precision oncology. It is very important. And today I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Salma Jabour, a professor at Rutgers University and one of the most amazing radiation oncologists I have uh, known over the past year. She is passionate about research and clinical care. And I've asked Dr. Jabour to join me on today's podcast to talk about some of the advances that are happening in the radiation oncology field. As we all know, the taking care of patients with any type of malignancy requires multidisciplinary care and continued dialogue between medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, and the entire ancillary team that is composed of pathologists, radiologists, interventional radiologists, patient advocates, and all that. So I really wanted to have Dr. Jabour on the podcast to talk about some of the research in radiation oncology, and more importantly, on the intersection between radiation oncology research and genomic profiling. I hope you'll enjoy today's podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can find it on all podcast outlets. You can rate the show as well, write a brief review, and refer a friend or a colleague to the show. Without further ado, Dr. Salma Jabour on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Okay, folks. Well, I'm pleased to have Dr. Salma Jabour with me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Um, really appreciate um, your time, Dr. Jabour, and, and, and joining us um, on today's podcast. So, for listeners, for folks who are tuning in for the first time or who don't know you and how they are them not knowing you because you are pretty active on social media, but if they don't, maybe a little bit about you, who you are, where you practice, and, and what got you into radiation oncology? How, how did this happen? Thanks, uh, Dr. Nepan. It's really a pleasure to Shady, be here. Shady, no doctors here. I, you know, I'm really fortunate to be a radiation oncologist. I practice at the Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, and we're here in New Brunswick, New Jersey, flagship site. I am professor and vice chair of clinical research and faculty development at the Rutgers Cancer Institute Department of Radiation Oncology. And I'm really involved in clinical trial development and execution of clinical trials uh, in the Cancer Center. And I'm really involved with clinical trials, uh, not only as an investigator, I co-lead the scientific review board. I'm involved with our ETCTN participation. I'm uh, also involved nationally in the cooperative group. So it's really exciting to be in this space as a radiation oncologist. What got you into it? Like, was it, uh, I mean, when you were in medical school or like what, 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 um, what was the story behind you deciding to get into radiation oncology residency? Yeah, so as I was deciding which specialty I wanted to pursue uh, for my career as a medical student, I really liked all the specialties, I have to admit. I loved surgery, I loved medicine, loved psychiatry, 
And I found that radiation oncology was actually kind of a mix of everything. We had this very, uh, I observed that my mentors at University of Maryland uh, in medical school and the other rotations I did had these really nice relationships uh, as oncologists with their patients. Um, radiation oncologists seem to spend a lot of time with their patients compared to some of the other specialties I'd observed. And it was the best of all worlds. We um, saw that patients sort of went to the radiation oncologist as a primary care doctor. The radiation oncologist has to understand the anatomy almost like a surgeon to design the radiation. Um, we got to see the emotional aspect of radiation oncology as a student. And, and that was really exciting to me that it kind of combined the best of all the worlds. And it's hard not for, for most of us, uh, we've all had personal experiences with cancer that drive us to wanna help um, advance the care of this disease uh, that affects so many people. Um, so that's really, was kind of the conglomerate of everything that led me to radiation oncology. And Salma, how, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you said you're vice chair, you're, you're, you're obviously teach, you see patients, you do all of that and trials and so on. So what does a day in your life as a faculty member look like? How do you divide your time between all of these um, tasks? I don't think anyone can answer that perfectly, but I would say that it's just kind of a balancing act uh, that, I wish I could compartmentalize all of the things that I do into one or the other. You know, the patient care always will come first. Um, some days I have full clinics and just focusing only on the patient care, but the patient care never just ends when the clinic finishes. Um, there's a lot of follow-up phone calls. There's a lot of follow-ups on tests, obviously designing the radiation plans for patients, uh, reiterating the radiation plans to perfect them. Um, so there's a lot of patient care that continues th throughout the week beyond the clinic days. And then the research and the mentoring happen at all hours of the day. Um, this morning I was on calls at 7.30 with a research mentee designing a trial, trying to brainstorm the right way to make a trial um, more effective and more strategic. Uh, we, you know, I do call sometimes on my way home from work at 8 o'clock at night or six o'clock at night or later. Um, so it's always, it's kind, of, um, it's kind of a love and it's kind of a, it's, a full, it's more than a full-time job, but I really like it, so it works. So uh, I know that this episode of the Karis Molecular Minute podcast is not going to air, is gonna air in 2022, and, but we're taping this, me and you, uh, few weeks after the uh, Astro 2021 meeting, um, where I followed it from afar, um, I'm always fascinated by really the advances across all disciplines pertaining to cancer care. It's impossible for you to summarize uh, all of the relevant, important data uh, pertaining in, you know, in a large international meeting like this. But is there like two or three things that really stuck when you left and you thought, okay, these are really have clinical application. These are really, you know, if I see a patient tomorrow after that meeting, I may change the way I take care of that patient after the meeting, or was it mainly just research, not immediate clinical impact? Oh, I think there's a lot of everything in the meeting and that's what makes Astro so as any annual meeting for major medical societies and oncology so exciting. Um, I found that 
a lot of the focus was really important on educating about diversity, uh, inclusion, and also educating about general topics. Um, as far as practice changing uh, information, I think a lot of that did occur, uh, particularly for some of the more common cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer. Um, I saw really interesting research and developments in a lot of the diseases, uh, particularly the diseases I treat, which are lung cancer and GI malignancies. Um, for me, I think I'm, uh, I do try to stay up on the data quite a bit. So um, some of it was very eye-opening. Um, one one um, plenary session that I thought was very interesting was the incorporation of dual checkpoint uh, therapy with radiation and uh, the results from that were very eye-opening. Um, so some of the things are, are just more to guide our practice um, and to refine it. I uh, would say that for the GI and lung sections, perhaps uh, I uh, was very fortunate to, to uh, not have to change my practice based on any of the information in a sense. And I mean, anything in terms of when you think of the world of precision oncology and and for, for radiation oncologists, when you hear the term precision oncology, what does that mean to a radiation oncologist and to patients undergoing radiotherapy? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, precision oncology for us is still a new idea, relatively speaking, in radiation oncology compared to medical oncology. I think that radiation oncologists have always sort of thought about this in understanding why certain tumors are sensitive to radiation and understanding that there are genetic, uh, genomic underpinnings to why a tumor may or may not respond to radiation. But I don't think as a field that we've generally always understood those exact underpinnings of the molecular features of the tumor that lead uh, to the response or lack of a response. I think that medical oncology has been a, a great leader in advancing the care for our patients based on the molecular uh, approaches, but radiation oncology still, I think, has a way to go to get to where medical oncology is, where we can better guide our care based on the genomic profile of the tumor. You do a lot of radiotherapy and radiation oncology type of research. Um, the type of research, at least, that uh, you're focused on, as well as the institution is focused on, from a radiation oncology perspective, do you think of um, these, like, these are the three buckets of radiation oncology-related research project I'm going to focus on? You know, I'm not a radiation oncologist, so I, I always try to think, do you focus on, I'm going to look at, you know, dose escalation, dose de-escalation. I'm going to look at combination therapy. I'm going to like, what, what are the, what are, what are the research projects that you um, are interested in for the next uh, few years when it comes to radiation oncology? Yeah, we saw, we actually saw um, some good data about dose escalation at Astro and I think our field and our field in general has been very good about studying the question of dose, whether it's dose escalation or dose de-escalation for a variety of cancers. What I think is still missing is, is the continued study that many of us are working on, which combines the systemic therapies that have proven so active in, uh, in cancer therapy, not only immunotherapies, but potentially newer targets. And that's where, for me, I feel our field needs to go. The reason for that is because 
I think in general, radiation is a very good modality to control the cancer in most locations, but really to advance the cure, um, we really have to focus on the systemic nature of most of these diseases. And the, re the reality is that radiation can work very well in most locations of the body uh, when it's served properly, but where we, uh, where we may lose the battle is with the distant disease and the, uh, the implications of systemic therapy. So for me, that's been a major research interest is, is that those combinations that can change, that can change the paradigm for patients. Yeah. Uh, Salma, what, what is, you know, in the field of, um, you, you're focused on thoracic and GI mainly. In the radiation oncology field, uh, in thoracic and in GI, what would you say the, I don't know, the, the biggest debates right now from a radiation oncology perspective, like if you were, if you're in charge of organizing a meeting for radiation oncologists in GI and radiation oncologists in thoracic, and you want to have a couple of debates, what are the topics that you would put two people on the podium debating uh, if they are both radiation oncologists? Yeah, I mean, I may have a different view than a lot of people on this topic. Uh, one question is still, uh, what is the exact timing of radiation and uh, systemic therapy, particularly immunotherapies, for our patients with lung cancer? So that's one question is, what are the optimal systemic therapies, particularly in terms of immunotherapy and the timing? Uh, meaning, is there still room to give immunotherapy sooner as opposed to in the adjuvant setting and stage three definitive chemoradiation? But another question I would have in, this, in the lung cancer space in the curative setting is what is the optimal uh, preoperative therapy for operable lung cancer? And I think we have a lot of interesting data about uh, the use of immunotherapy as an adjuvant therapy to surgery. Uh, but some questions for me still remain about what are the optimal ways to continue to downstage patients? And could that question include radiation? So those are the two big questions I might ask in the lung cancer space. In GI cancers, we struggle with what is the role of radiation in general, um, because we are an adjuvant therapy for many of the situations uh, that people deal with GI cancers. For esophageal cancer, we're a neoadjuvant therapy uh, for many of the pancreatic cancers, we're often a neoadjuvant therapy as well as rectal cancer. So those questions in those spaces could include things about timing and dose to some degree, how we incorporate radiation as a, as a modality in general. Is it sooner or later in the patient's course? And certainly there's still questions of dose, uh, particularly in pancreatic cancer and maybe to some degree in rectal cancer. So there's still quite a few questions to ask. I think one interesting question in esophageal cancer is whether or not um, maximal downstaging makes a, makes a difference in the setting of adjuvant uh, nivolumab um, given the Checkmate 577 data. So it, does maximal downstaging maybe result in a, a truly better uh, outcome for those patients with esophageal cancer that's resected? So we still have many unanswered questions in the GI space and GI cancers, as you know, are so diverse. Um, so we still have a lot of work to do there. So for me as a non-radiation oncologist, I would say that there are three things that fascinate me about radiation oncology. And um, I would like for you maybe to spend one minute each for listeners, just so they, because they, their modalities are really unique. Gamma knife, cyber knife, and proton therapy. 
So if if a listener wants to understand what gamma knife is, what cyber knife is, and what what um, proton therapy is, I, I'd like them to understand these. But I also wonder what when you think about the genomic uh, profiling and you talked about biomarkers and relationships. Do these, you think, apply also for these newer modalities, gamma, cyber, and proton, or are these more for the traditional uh, radiotherapy? Um, and I think um, that, that would be very informative to listeners who are uh, listening to this show. Yeah, those are great questions, Shadi. So radiation has gotten so sophisticated nowadays that I will say that the lines between many of these modalities is a little blurred. I've always uh, thought that with uh, many of the sophisticated tools that we use for daily daily positioning of radiation, um, that some of the, the differences between these treatments are very subtle. But I'll go ahead and try to explain them as best I can with uh, just uh, words because no one can see any diagrams. And remember, who people who are <laughs> listening to you, they're probably not radiation oncologists. So you'll, you yeah. know, again, it's for the general for the general listener. Yeah, so radiation is a very strong X-ray beam, and its ability to work is very similar to chemotherapy, where we can um, where we can damage uh, double strands of DNA either by injuring one strand or two strands, which really impacts the stability of the cell, the cancer cell, and when it goes to divide, is really unable to kind of do its do its kind of normal business of dividing. So. That's how radiation and chemotherapy have been traditionally thought to work. We have much greater understandings now about the um, how these therapies work on a molecular basis, but that's a very general explanation. Uh, gamma knife radiosurgery is a very pinpointed radiation that's specific for brain tumors, and it's similar to cyber knife uh, radiosurgery, whereas cyber knife is um, both gamma knife and cyber knife are in the general term of stereotactic body radiotherapy or stereotactic radiosurgery, but they're essentially meaning that there's a three-dimensional targeting in space to focus the radiation very precisely on the tumor. And usually uh, this means that we're using many, many small angles, um, sort of like a spotlight on a stage where uh, if you've been to a play, you might see that the spotlight is actually composed of many small lights that then uh, result in the big spotlight that the performer stands in. And this is, um, this is how gamma knife, cyber knife, and all the stereotactic radiosurgery procedures work. They're just these small beams of radiation so that when one beam passes through an area, it really has very little effect on the tissues that are being passed through. And then uh, the maximum radiation can be focused or concentrated on the tumor. And gamma knife is specific to the brain. It's a brand name of a radiosurgery treatment CyberKnife is actually very similar in terms of its ability to focus. It uses some slightly different technology and is also meant to focus anywhere in the body, including the brain. Uh, but they're both very general techniques uh, called stereotactic body or stereotactic radiosurgery, stereotactic body radiosurgery, stereotactic body radiotherapy that um, imply this very precise millimeter or so accuracy um, throughout the body. Usually these treatments are given in a few sessions, traditionally uh, considered one to five sessions and traditionally given spaced over a week or two weeks time, uh, depending on the situ exact situation. And they're thought to be very safe and very effective because they're giving very high doses of radiation. Uh, many of these types of tumors we can 
cure, such as early stage lung cancers, can be cured with these types of therapies. In general, they're um, a photon-based therapy, uh, which is one of the most common radi types of radiation we give day to day. And this photon therapy is the type of therapy we give uh, for IMRT. Um, and the proton is a bit different. Um, the proton has some different characteristics. This is particularly important in pediatric tumors um, where we have young children who are still growing and developing and uh, particularly important in the setting of giving more radi radiation a second time. And this type of radiation can be stopped at a certain distance, and uh, that can protect the, the radiation from exiting um, into other organs. So it just literally kind of stops at the wall or whatever um, area we're kind of giving the radiation to. So it has that very specific characteristic of not spreading out the radiation as might be done with some of the other technologies. That's amazing, really. And just listening to this is just fascinating, right? I mean, the, the technology is amazing. So you think when we talk about biomarkers and genomic profiling that some of this research will apply to these modalities? Or do you feel that a lot of this is more for the photon traditional type of therapy? Well, it's a really good question. I, I think that in general, the photon-based therapies, we kind of consider them to be equal, but in general, there has been a lot of debate about how they may work when we give different doses from very low doses to very high doses. I don't think we fully understand, um, fully understand the differences, but what I could say is that the genomic profiling will the more we learn about the genomics and radiation therapy, probably the more specific we'll have to get. For example, this genomic profile may or may not predict radiation response for gamma knife or, or for a certain type of radiation, and it may generalize to other types of radiation or other types of doses, but we certainly will have to look at this more closely, but this will be an important component going forward. Well, we took so much of your time. I really appreciate it. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, I, I, I've learned so much. Um, my last question to you, if me and you are having this conversation in three years from now about radiation oncology research and molecular profiling, what do you think we'll be talking about? Oh, I hope we'll have made quite a bit of progress by then where we can start to speak about certain genomic uh, marker signatures and features that would help us to better guide our treatment, whether we need high doses, low doses, or medium doses, um, that we can have a paradigm to change patient care and to improve the care for our, all of our patients um, as we move along in the years uh, going forward. Dr. Jabour, thank you as always for visiting with me and with us on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thanks to you and your team and your time today for this uh, really fun interview. And I hope that we can change uh, patient care um, as we go along. We will. We will. Thanks, everyone. I really appreciate your listening and your support to the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. You can let me know any feedback on how I'm doing and how the podcast is performing by sending me a direct message on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or by emailing me at cnabhan at karisls.com. I appreciate your support and I promise that we will continue to provide excellent content and timely topics 
on the intersection between clinical medicine and precision oncology. Until next time, take care.